welcome Victor Joffe QC to the latest Harney's Offshore Litigation Podcast. I can't think of anything better to do than to be discussing the Privy Council case of Chew and Mao. Thank you, Victor. Well, Ian, I'm very pleased to discuss it with you. <laughs> very interesting case, Victor. Two friends and businessmen um, from Hong Kong, Mr. Lau and Mr. Chu, go into business together, a number of endeavours as joint venturers, but in this particular case, they set up a company in the British Virgin Islands called Ocean Sino Limited. And Ocean Sino Limited, in turn, holds 100% of a Hong Kong company called PBM, which in turn has 49% of the shares in Beibu Gulf, uh, Hong Kong. And the other 51% uh, classically is held by a state-owned PRC company. And the underlying uh, endeavour is the purchase of eight dry bulk carriers to, as uh, one would imagine, transport uh, dry bulk. And the endeavour is successful to begin with but then begins to fall apart. And Mr. Lau and Mr. Chu are directors and shareholders of the BVI company, directors of the Hong Kong company, and also directors by virtue of their 49% interest in Baby Golf. And so they are working closely together. But in 2014, after having set up the companies some years earlier, their constructive relationship breaks down and Mr. Lau feels compelled to bring a just and equitable winding up in the uh, courts of the BVI to wind up Ocean Sino Limited, the BVI company. And of course, Mr. Chu resists that particular petition to, to, to wind up. A very, very experienced High Court judge, Justice Roger K. QC, hears the six-day trial and Mr. Lau is successful in his petition. It then subsequently goes to the Court of Appeal and the Court of Appeal finds that the judge was wrong, uh, overturns the, the decision, discharges the winding up order and the matter then goes to the Privy Council in London and eventually the Privy Council holds in a very recent decision that the Court of Appeal was uh, wrong on its findings of law and some fascinating issues arise about the jurisdiction of, of just and equitable winding up. So Victor, I suppose the first question is what's new about this case? Is it just another j petition on the facts? Well, it is a slightly odd case in that, as you say, we have a decision by a very experienced judge who decides on mainly on facts and discretion and that is completely overturned by the Court of Appeal. And what we see in the main judgment given by Lord Briggs is a discussion of uh, just and equitable winding up petitions generally and then he proceeds to deal with four specific points on which the Court of Appeal overturned the first instance decision. And to a certain extent the discussion of just nectar winding up is really more confirmatory mm. than revolutionary mm. in terms of the law. The four specific points which are raised um, are also uh, interesting. And again, they're more uh, an incremental uh, development of what we already know rather than anything particularly revolutionary. 
But there are some important points, and I think the first thing that one would draw attention to would be the discussion by Lord Briggs of what deadlock means, Mm. because there are really uh, two types of deadlock which he identifies, one of which is management deadlock, where, say, you've got uh, two shareholders and they're both directors, and they uh, fall out and they cannot agree on any management decisions. And that is the sort of deadlock which will cause the court to wind up the company. But it makes no difference whether or not that type of company is a quasi-partnership. And the other type of deadlock is the type of deadlock which arises in a quasi-partnership And that's essentially where there is a complete failure of mutual trust and confidence. And if there is a failure of mutual trust and confidence in the quasi-partnership company, that that can be termed deadlock, even though the underlying company may continue to be successfully managed and, and successfully generating uh, profits as it goes along. And I mean, it is helpful to break them down I- into the two different types of breakdown cases, to, to quote Lord Briggs, um, because where there's a complete functional deadlock, then a winding up may be ordered regardless of whether the company is, is, is akin to you know, a quasi-partnership. But if the company is of, of a quasi-partnership type, then a breakdown of trust and confidence might well justify a winding up, even where there may not be a complete functional deadlock. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, Lady Arden, who gave the other judgment, mm. she thinks that in interest of clarity, the term deadlock should only be used for uh, functional or management deadlocks. And that would involve you finding some other term for non-functional or non-management deadlocks. But she doesn't actually suggest a term for that. But she simply suggests, well, it's part and parcel of the question of the duty which uh, those in quasi-partnerships owe each other. And she cites a very interesting Privy Council case, actually, an appeal from the Supreme Court of the then Federation of Malaya, where, where deadlock was interpreted absolutely literally and she says sort of in this day and age actually her words let's not get too carried away by the word deadlock itself let's look at what Lord Wilberforce is saying in the way that he illustrates the the general principles of of, of quasi-partnership. We always have to bear in mind that some of these cases do predate Lord Wilberforce's judgment in 1973 and in a nutshell in Ebrahim and Westbourne galleries Lord Wilberforce was saying well these principles have existed, but the courts have been very reluctant to apply them. And in one sense, Ebrahimi took the handbrake off in terms of finding quasi-partnerships and, and, and reasons to wind up companies on the just and equitable ground. I mean, perhaps just as, as an aside, it, it's a remarkable history because the statutory iteration of a court being able to wind up a company on just and equitable grounds originates with the, the, the Companies Act 1862, which was the first English act to liberalise, essentially, limited liability for all entities. And the, the, the first case of interest of following that act was, was actually Solomon and Solomon itself. And all these years later, in 2020, we're still arguing about the actual <laughs> boundaries of the just and equitable jurisdiction. It's yeah. fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the argument's going to continue to go on <laughs> uh, because you, know, you get infinite fact situations in, uh, in cases which give rise to these uh, disputes. And indeed, the, the four points which Lord Briggs discusses actually also demonstrate how individual issues can arise, as you say, many years after this jurisdiction came into, into being. And so shall we start with the idea of what 
what aspects should be taken into account between the shareholders of a company when a gen any petition is 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 filed vis-a-vis a BVI court. Does a court take into account uh, subsidiaries and affiliates, or what are the matters that can be taken into account? Well, in this case, what was argued before the Privy Council was that the court could not take into account in relation to the affairs of OSL, the top the top company, Ocean Sino Limited, what had happened in the sub-subsidiary company uh, that you mentioned, the, the, the joint venture company, uh, Baby Gulf. And what was said was that uh, because uh, Mr. Lau had been excluded from the management of that company, that was something which couldn't be relied on as unfairly prejudicial conduct of the affairs of OSL itself. And what uh, Lord Briggs said was that, well, when you're dealing with a quasi-partnership, what matters is the relationship between the quasi-partners and, and the extent to which the necessary basis of trust and confidence has evaporated. And he said in terms, for that purpose, no aspect of their business relationship is likely to be irrelevant. And, and he relied also on, on uh, what Lord Wilberforce had said in Ibrahimian Westbourne Galleries. Now, he, he went through the breakdown of the business relationship and basically said that all of the matters which he identified were relevant to um, the breakdown of trust and confidence between uh, the two uh, gentlemen. And um, he said that uh, the, the judge was right to say that OSL was a quasi-partnership company and um, its management included the management of the affairs of its wholly owned subsidiary. So I think we see from that that the most important point arising from that discussion is that the width of the matters that you can take into account when assessing whether or not there's a breakdown of trust and confidence for the purposes of winding up. And interestingly, I mean, I, I just noted here that, you know, at paragraph 58, he discusses the interplay between JNE petitions, they're not unfair prejudice claims, and he, he notes, you know, one might well prove breakdown of trust and confidence without proving unfair prejudice in the management of the company, because the word in Conrad Affairs and the management of the company is much more limited for unfair prejudice. And I, I had always perhaps now erroneously thought that unfair prejudice was, you know, because it's it's a lower threshold, you don't have to show that the conduct is so bad as to justify a winding up of a company, that it was easier, but actually it might be the other way around, because what Lord Briggs is saying is you can look at more behaviour with a JNE petition in a quasi-partnership company than you can with unfair prejudice. Yes, uh, you're absolutely right, Ian, and indeed that's echoed by Lady Arden, where she says that the, the equitable obligations which... Mr. Chu owed to his quasi-partner, Mr. Lau, affected his activities in relation to Baby Gulf. Um, and she draws expressly a distinction, and she says the position in unfair prejudice is different because of the words, uh, the affairs of the company. Mm. And she says, well, you have to pay attention to whether those statutory words are fulfilled. But I think you're right, that, that, that although there's obviously a, a considerable area of overlap in the two jurisdictions, it does look as if this decision indicates 
something of a widening of the approach in relation to what you can take into account mm. in just inequitable winding up cases as opposed to unfair prejudice cases. And I think for that reason alone, this case is more significant than it first appears. So I think when you first read the judgment, you think, oh, this, this is just a sort of summary of, of existing principles. But I, there are subtleties here that, that need to be picked apart, I think. I think you're absolutely mm. right in that comment, yes. Mm. yes. And so perhaps we ought to move on to a point that obviously you know, was argued fiercely and, and, and took up a lot of uh, attention of everyone as to, you know, whether or not the deadlock is at the date of filing of the, the petition, or rather it's at the date of the hearing. And the way that Lord Briggs sets it out, it all seems so absolutely obvious that, you know, Section 162 of the BVI Insolvency Act is, is couched in the present tense, and therefore you look at it at the time of the hearing. But it can't have been that simple <laughs> as it went through years of litigation, but as presented to us here, it, it, it seems perfectly sensible. I think that's right. It's part of the legacy of the, of the Eshelby and Federated European Bank mm. litigation, which he discusses. That case has bedeviled this particular point for many, many years, this question of whether or not you can take into account post-petition facts. Mm. And as Lord Briggs said in England and Wales, the authorities firmly against application to members winding up proceedings. But now we have it confirmed that for the BVI as well, that the Eshelby rule doesn't apply to just an equitable winding up. And Lord Briggs it, it, it says precisely why. And so what position is that the court in the BVI, as, as in England, would take into account events at the date of the hearing, not just at the date mm. of the application. Mm. Though in this case, as we see from the judgment, the, the, the judge did find at the date of the application itself there was sufficient grounds for just an equitable winding up. So sort of doubly wrong, actually. The, doubly wrong. The, the, the judge was... <laughs> the judge was doubly right. <laughs> the judge was doubly right. Cool. Impossible to impugn his decision, basically. Yes. I mean, an interesting point we, we ought to point out as well is that rather unusually that the, the BVI has a statutory rule that says that the winding up takes uh, effect at the date the order is made. There's no relation back period as you have in, in England. So to some extent, that, that's yet another reason why the Eshelby uh, rule makes no sense in, in the BVI context, but just, just a, a point of interest for people. The next point um, that Lord Briggs discusses is this idea that the Court of Appeals said that actually the, the learned trial judge failed to take into account the freedom of Mr. Lau, the, the petitioner claimant, to sell his shares in Ocean Sino as a means of avoiding deadlock. That, that was his escape route, and that's what he should have done. Does that resonate with you? Well, actually, uh, in, it doesn't. I, I have to say, from my own part, I, I, I thought that was uh, an optimistic point to raise. Mm. Uh, Lord Briggs actually deals with this in an interesting way. He says that it, that might be an answer to a functional or management deadlock type case. But in this case, it's quite clear that Mr. Lau wasn't able to sell his shares on fair terms. And he, he gives the reasons for that inter alia. If somebody came along to buy Mr. Lau's shares, they'd be faced with having Mr. Chu as a business partner. <laughs> <laughs> Putting it in the vernacular, nobody would want to do that. And I mean, um, the, these things, just, just to try to be practical, and I think of it how we do it on the ground, these things turn on whether you'll actually find a, a willing buyer, as you say. And in this case, it was uh, even more difficult because there were certainly uh, findings that Mr. Chu wasn't giving necessary financial information for any earlier attempts at extracting and separating the party's interests anyway. So th there would be no 
by-election evaluation would have been possible. So it's a very unfair point to take, really. Absolutely. <laughs> Lord, Lord Briggs says, well, it's freedom to sell purely theoretical. And he says it's properly ignored by both the parties and the judge. Right. Frankly, and I think that's all you can say about that. <laughs> and then we, we get to this sort of thorny issue of the alternative remedies. And I have to say, it sort of always rather terrifies me when, when clients say, uh, just an actual petition, please, that there is no hope here. We, we want, you know, the full and most nuclear or draconian, to use the Court of Appeals expression, in this case, option. And you always think, oh, but the riposte will be, well, there's an alternative remedy. But actually, there's some new clarity has been brought by Lord Briggs's decision in, in relation to the way in which uh, alternative remedies have to be presented. I think the first point is it's important that he draws attention to the fact that the Court of Appeal was wrong in saying that it was for Mr Lau to show there was no alternative remedy reasonably available to him. That the burden was on the respondent to show that there was was uh, an alternative remedy which wasn't being reasonably pursued. And I, I think that um, in one sense that was an end of it because that was something which Mr Chu wasn't able to do. And he also says that the Court of Appeal appears to have concluded that if a case for winding up had been established, it could itself have ordered a, a buyout. Mm. He said that was wrong in law because on a, a just and equitable winding up, the BVI Court has no such jurisdiction. Now, of course, you'll know from your experience in Cayman that that is possible. But of course, it's not possible in the BBI, it's not possible indeed in England or Hong Kong, where you've got to have a, um, a, a, an unfair prejudice petition uh, for a, a buyout remedy. So it's a very good point, and there's some confusion there. Had it been the other way around, had Mr. Lau filed an unfair prejudice claim, he could have obtained a buyout, but also he might have tagged on in, in the final paragraph, as, as one often sees in, in the pleadings, in the alternative, a claim for a, a just equitable petition. What do you think about that, Victor? There's, there is some judicial criticism in many jurisdictions of tagging that on as, as an almost afterthought at the end, and, and judges say, well, nay, your colours to the mask. Which one do you want? I have to say I completely agree with that approach. I, I think that adding in just equitable winding up is something which causes so many problems to particularly these these companies are almost always trading got employees that they're earning profits mm. adding in the winding up claim means that you've got problems with banks you've then got to go for validation orders mm. i think my, my own personal view is that you shouldn't, if, if you're presenting an unfair prejudice petition, that there ought to be some sort of procedural filter to make sure that you don't present a winding up petition as well, unless you've got a really good reason to do that. It's no good really to say, well, you can apply to strike out for winding up relief, because that can take months. And actually, this case really accentuates how different the two jurisdictions are. You yes. have to have a, an understanding of those differences before deciding where your facts fall really. Isn't it interesting that a case that seemed actually not very interesting, we have managed to turn into a fascinating case, actually. So thank you very much, Victor, for joining us. And uh, we hope to see you as a, as a guest on another one of these podcasts. You're very welcome, Ian. Anytime. <laughs>